right, turn to Psalm 145. Appreciate, as Stephen said, people filling in tonight. Always appreciate people doing their best to make this work. Thankful for that. Thankful for the musicians. That was really great. I really appreciate the music here, by the way, the praise music, worship music. It's tremendous. Doctrine's tremendous. Appreciate Daniel Kim stepping in to play the guitar. That was great, Daniel. We need to make you one of the guys that's around here more often in this musical endeavor up here on the platform. So thank you for that. Psalm 145, let's read this entire chapter. Psalm 145, David says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, or greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly one shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall, and he raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you, open, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord will keep all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. You all know the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. In that prayer, Jesus teaches us how he wants us to pray. And the first thing he says in his prayer, the way he starts his prayer, and you all know this, is by giving praise to God. He says, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's how he starts his prayer. First and foremost, starting by giving praise to God. And that's how we should be. We should think in terms of this is the first thing. This is the foremost thing. This is the priority. We want to give praise to God. Now, the reality is we usually place the focus on ourselves, But the scripture always calls us back to giving praise to God again and again. As you know, we're in Psalm 145 again this week. We started last week. And uh, we noticed that Psalm 145 is a praise, a psalm of praise, pure praise to God. In fact, look at the title over verse 1. It says, a psalm of praise of David. Psalm of praise. And I read this week that originally the book of Psalms was not named at all, unnamed. But then in time it became known as the book of praises. And then the Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament came along and titled it the book of Psalms. Psalms meaning a uh, song sung to the accompaniment of a plucked instrument or a musical, a stringed instrument. In fact, 
Jesus himself calls it the book of Psalms in the New Testament. But it certainly is appropriate to think of it in terms of the book of praises. What a great way to think of it. The, the entire Psalter. Yes, we have l- Psalms of lament in this book. We have Psalms of enthronement, Psalms of wisdom, and all these kind of different categories of Psalms. But it always leads us back to the praise of God every time. And Psalm 145 leads off the last six, uh, and we're in the conclusion. By the way, there's five books in the Psalms, and we thank you, Dr. Martin, for the suggestion on the structure of the Psalms, and I did get that book this week. Well, today I got the book. <laughs> and uh, I know there are five books of, in the Psalms, but in the last section, I think Psalm 107 to 150 is the conclusion, or the, uh, the conclusion, we'll call it right now. I can't remember the word exactly. To the... The consummation of the Psalms, right, exactly. And uh, this is the consummation of the consummation, the last six chapters, we might call it. That's my word, not the author's. And uh, the last six Psalms, beginning with Psalm 145, uh, talk about the the, the praises of God. Each is focused on the praises of God. I always love to, when I, you know, you read through the Psalms, or however you do that, sometimes I'll read other, usually I'm reading a variety of things in the scripture, but the Psalms, you're thinking that last section, you know, like the last lap of the race, you're thinking, man, these are all praise psalms, and it's, and it's really a great thing. But it's certainly appropriate to think of the psalms that way as book of praise. Now, last week we noticed in verses 1 and 2 the resolve to praise God. David had a resolve to praise God. He resolved in his heart that he's going to do this. Now, this is not a mechanically a mechanical thing. It's not a rote discipline uh, as such. He wanted to praise God because it, it was uh, the overflow of his heart. Uh, he was enthusiastic. Read his words, and his, his, you see his enthusiasm for the Lord coming out. You see his love for the Lord. You see his determination, and the words, I'm going to praise God, come out. And so David overflowed with praises to God, and so the God was the object of his resolve, the object of his resolve. And then we saw the strength of uh, his resolve. Uh, the first two verses of Psalm 145 Four times he used the word, I will, I will, look at those words, I will extol you, O Lord, I will bless your name, I will bless you, I will praise your name. He's clearly set on this pursuit to praise God. It's a strong resolve that he makes, one that all of us should, should make ourselves. It's also a consistent resolve, since he says in verse 2, uh, he says, I will bless the, the, the Lord every day, every single day I'm going to bless you, consistently. And it's a permanent resolve because he says, I'm going to do this forever and ever. Now, David follows up his resolve to praise the Lord with reasons to praise the Lord. And the first reason to praise him is because of his greatness. He's great in his person. He's great in his works. This is last week. That's verses 3 to 6. The second reason David finds to praise God is, is for his goodness. God is not only great, but God is also good. Verses 7 to 8 talk about his abundant goodness. And then verses 9 to 10 talk about his universal goodness. And so that was last week. Now we move on to the rest of the psalm. There's a third reason David finds to praise God, as if we couldn't find many more reasons. And that is he praises God for his kingdom. His kingdom in verses 11 to 13. And let's read those words together. Uh, David says, they, that is the godly ones, from verse 10, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures 
throughout all generations. Again, we're confronted with kingly language. We saw this in verse 1. David refers to the Lord as uh, my God and O King, he says. And in verse 5, he says he has plans to meditate on the glorious splendor of his majesty. Kingly language. Now in verses 11 to 13, he elaborates again on God as the ruler. Now, we're talking about the sovereign rule of God over all things. Psalm 123.1 informs us that God is enthroned in the heavens. He's enthroned. And the Lord is the king. The Lord rules over his kingdom. In fact, the word kingdom is in these verses, 11 to 13, is used four times, as you see again and again. And then the word dominion is used in verse 13 to further emphasize his rule. Now, we're not speaking right now of the millennial kingdom. Our church would probably tend to think in terms of the millennial kingdom. And yes, there is a millennial kingdom. I'm not saying there's not, but we're not talking about that right now. Our concern is verses 11 to 13. And let me give you a couple of uh, definitions to maybe clarify this a little bit. Dr. Bill Barrick, who used to teach Hebrew at uh, Master's Seminary, now retired, he says that the Lord's kingdom in these verses refers to his universal and continuous reign over all creation. Is universal and continuous reign over all creation. God never loses control of his creation, Dr. Barrick says. And uh, John MacArthur, just to throw up, to, to uh, uh, piggyback on that statement to make it a little clearer, says David here refers here to the broadest use of kingdom in scripture. That is, God the eternal king ruling over all from before creation and eternally thereafter. Talking about the rule of God over all things from the beginning. His kingdom. Now, the rule of God is not a matter to keep silent about. These verses, again and again, tell us not to do that. They tell us to do just the opposite. We're to openly proclaim the kingdom. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, as a song. All thy works shall praise thy name. Said, the end of verse 10, Your godly ones shall bless you. So godly people bless God. But then you continue on to verse 11. We're talking about the godly saying things. Godly people also speak the beginning of verse 11, of the glory of God's kingdom. The last part of verse 11, they talk of God's power. Godly people in verse 12 make known to others his mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of his kingdom. So this is not a, this is not a secret. This is not con confidential information for just a few people, a chosen few. This is open, open to the public. This is to be shared with the public. And we're to proclaim this news. So what exactly about the kingdom are we to say and to speak and to talk and to make known? First of all, we should tell people and let them know that God's kingdom is glorious. It's a glorious kingdom. Verse 11 mentions the glory of your kingdom. And verse 12 talks about the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. And why is this kingdom so glorious, this kingdom we can't see? It's because the Lord himself, the king himself, is glorious. That's why. Like, it reminds me of Hebrews Chapter 1, verse 3, which says that Christ is the glory of God, the outshining of God. And the same way God is, is glorious. His glory pervades everything, and so it's a glorious kingdom. And just because people don't recognize that and refuse to recognize that doesn't mean it's not so. You know, earthly rulers are fond of bragging about the glory of their kingdom. They're always, they've always done this throughout history. Read history, and you will see very clearly kings throughout history ruled an empire talked about how great they were, and they put it on their coins, and, and they had people talk about it, and, 
it was always a, a, something they, they addressed themselves as. Uh, in Esther chapter 1, we have a king, King Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And in the third year of his reign, he gives a banquet for his leaders, his nobles, and his princes, and his military officers, high-ranking people. Esther 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 4 tells us this. It says that Artaxerxes displayed the riches of his glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. Interesting that the same words are used in Psalm 145 of our God the King, glory, splendor, majesty. Artaxerxes wanted everybody to know, hey, I'm a great king, and I have a great kingdom, and look at, look at what I have here. But it was a far greater and more majestic and a more powerful king than he who gave him his authority. There was someone higher than King Artaxerxes, the ruling uh, emperor of the time in his day, had this vast kingdom. It was a greater than he that gave him that kingdom. It was God who gave Artaxerxes his authority to reign. Daniel 2.21 sums that up nicely. It says, it's God who removes kings and who establishes kings. So it's God who does this sovereignly. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his palace. It, look, it looks like he was walking on the roof of his palace overlooking the city of Babylon. And he says to himself, now this is what he says to himself. You talk about pride. When you're talking to yourself in terms of pride, you know you have a problem. He says, is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Again, similar words, although this time in Aramaic, I think in Daniel chapter 4, similar words to Psalm 145, might, power, glory, majesty. And they all proclaim the greatness of their kingdom. Men always do this. Similar words to use here. Similar words, but a vast difference in glory. A great difference in glory. The kingdoms of men have a fading glory. It's an earthly glory. A glory that's not going to be here for forever. Like the flower that fades. Like the word of God that lasts forever. And the flower that fades, so men's kingdoms fade. But compared to the brilliant glory of God... All these kingdoms pale into insignificance. Men may rule a country. They may rule several countries. They may have a great empire. But God sovereignly rules over all. He's over all the galaxies, over everything. In fact, it was the king of glory who removed glory from King Nebuchadnezzar. He removed that glory. He said, I'm going to, look, you're so filled with pride, you don't get it. I'm going to remove, remove your glory from you. And so for seven years, God reduced his glory to that of a beast who was reduced to, to that of a beast who ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. His hair grew out like eagle's feathers, the text says, Daniel 4, and his, and his nails like the birds. And this self-glory Nebuchadnezzar had, was so enamored with, was taken away. And the only thing that remained was absolute humiliation. What a difference from what he thought he was. He had to learn the lesson the hard way. It's not about his glory. It's not about my glory. It's about God's glory. He's the one in charge. He's the boss. God is in charge. And God does, and this is the personal testimony of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 4. If you get a chance to read Daniel 4, it's a tremendous chapter. The personal testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. God does according to his will, he found out, in, in the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one 
not even the great king of Babylon, can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's the, man, that's the, the testimony of a man who was humbled from this lofty position of pride to absolute humility. He learned God's in charge. It's God who has the truly glorious kingdom. It is God who exercises the greatest power of all. It is God who is truly majestic. And man can never rightfully claim these things. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempted Jesus on three, three different times. He failed every time. That is, Satan failed every time. And his temptation, on the third temptation, Satan takes Jesus up to the high, a high mountain and shows him all, and it says, the text says, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Here's what we have, all these kingdoms, all this glory. Isn't it great? Doesn't it look great? And Satan says to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will only fall down and worship me. So Satan presents Jesus an offer, a trade, you might say. Look, I'll give you all this if you will just bow down before me, worship me. And you know what Jesus said? He said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now if you think about it, it's almost comedic. Here's Satan, he's going to offer Jesus, the creator, the, the, the world's glory and the world's kingdoms. That, that glory is nothing compared to the glory of God. It's nothing at all. You know, if you buy into the glories of this world and you find your satisfaction in this world and the things of this world, you are following the God of this age. You're following the God of this world. I hope you're not pouring your dreams and hopes tonight into this world system and the glory you can get from it, whatever you can get from it, because all glory and majesty and power belong to God alone. And we, have, we as God's people are to speak about these matters. We're to make them known, it says. Again and again in this, these verses, we're to talk about it, speak about it, make it known to people. Spurgeon said, this, the work must be done for every age. What work? That is the work, he was talking about the work of proclaiming God's kingdom proclaiming God's power and glory and might, the whole statement goes like this. Spurgeon said, the work must be done for every age, that work of proclaiming God's kingdom. For, why? For men have short memories in reference to God and the doings of his power. Men have short memories. They, don't, they soon forget the things that God has done in this world. They soon forget. And so we need to refresh their memories. We as God's people should proclaim his glories in evangelism, to people, uh, the Lord's kingdom versus Satan's kingdom versus the kingdom of darkness. We should proclaim his death and resurrection. We should proclaim it to the church. We should proclaim it in our homes. Talk about the glory of God. We should talk about it, speak of it, make it known, it says. And so God's kingdom is glorious. Secondly, God's kingdom is eternal, verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. You can't even help but think of Daniel chapter 4 again. When you, when you think of King Nebuchadnezzar said those words seemingly almost verbatim, King Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4.34, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And he learned that. God has the everlasting kingdom. And the psalmist David says that here. You know, earthly kings, kingdoms, appear for a while on the planet, study history again, and find out if this isn't so. It, they appear for a while on the planet, but they all go by the wayside, no matter how powerful they once were. Every one of them. You take the Roman Empire. This is truly astounding. The Roman Empire began, was founded approximately 27 B.C. It lasted, at least the eastern part, 
of the empire until 1453 A.D., about 14 centuries or so. Think about that. That's quite a run for an empire. 14 centuries. Amazing. But nevertheless, it came to an end. It still came to an end, as all earthly kingdoms do. At one time, people used to say about England, they used to say, the sun never sets on the British Empire. That was a, a, a famous saying. They said that because British rule was so extensive in the world that wherever you went in the world, on some part of it, the sun was shining on the British Empire 24 hours a day. And they all knew that. And it, and it continued to do that until the sun finally set on the British Empire. I think after World War II, it disintegrated totally, as a worldwide empire at least. But God's kingdom has always been in operation. The sun never sets on God's kingdom. It's never been overthrown. It never will be overthrown. It will not disintegrate. It will not self-destruct. It's an everlasting kingdom. But, but, but the, the, the objection comes back. But you say, yeah, but it just seems like the whole world is out of control. The world, the flesh, the devil are doing their best to dethrone God. Yes. Yes, they are. What, what did we expect? They're God's enemies. All kings have enemies who try to dethrone them. God has the greatest of enemies who are trying to dethrone him. And so, yes, there is this fight. There is this battle between kingdoms, kingdoms in conflict, one with the other, Satan's kingdom, God's kingdom. God's kingdom is the winning kingdom, though, the victorious kingdom. And as I thought about this, I uh, couldn't help but think of a hymn, This is My Father's World. And there's a line in that hymn I particularly love. It goes like this. It says, oh, ne oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, doesn't it? God is the ruler yet. Now, it appears to be to us, and yes, it is indeed. Uh, there's evil all over the place in the entire world, and yet God is the ruler. We don't know the plans of God on every issue. We don't know the entire wisdom of God. Only God knows Satan can make hay while the sun is shining, but he has an end coming. His end will come. He will be cast into the lake of fire. But God's kingdom is glorious. It's eternal. He's the king. He rules. He reigns everlastingly. There's a fourth reason to praise God, and that's because of his provision. His provision in verses 14 to 20. Uh, he provides for us in so many ways. Uh, first of all, he sustains the helpless. Verse 14, the Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. Now, what's fascinating about verse 14 is the first thing you have to understand is that it follows on the heels of verses 11 to 13, describing the sovereign rule of God. And so we go immediately from a, the God who is the glorious, powerful, majestic ruler with an everlasting kingdom to the God who condescends to man, who reaches down, to help lift up the fallen of the earth. Same God. Same God. The all-powerful God is also the all-compassionate God. This is an amazing truth. A lot of kings in their kingdoms, they would have nothing to do with those who were lowly at all. But God is not like that. He's the one who has compassionate on the lowly. Now, in theology, there are two words that describe that. One is transcendence and the other is eminence. I had a teacher who called that immanence. I can never get that out of my head. I think he did that just to, to, uh, discriminate, to distinguish it between that word and the eminence of Christ's coming, but whatever the reason was. Transcendence is, means this. God is greater than creation and independent of it. Greater than creation and independent of creation. He's over creation. 
He's the one who created the world. Eminence has to do with God's involvement in creation. He's in, not only separate and over the creation and independent of it, he is involved in his creation. Both are true. And so the exalted Lord condescends, I like the word condescends, to the lowly condition of mankind, their sinful condition, and helps them out. He, verse 14, he sustains all who fall. He raises up all who are bowed down. <clears throat> Isaiah 57, 15 says this, For thus says the high and exalted one, God, the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, he says this, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and the, to revive the heart of the contrite. What an amazing verse. God reaching down in condescension and, and helping and saving man and helping in so many ways. Well, the parallelism, parallelism here in verse 14 is for all who fall and all who are bowed down. That describes people who are beaten down by life. They're depressed. They're greatly weakened by their circumstances. Maybe you're there tonight. Maybe that's how you feel tonight. Some have fallen down completely. The beginning of verse 14, others are on their way down. But the Lord helps those who cannot help themselves. Now, we say the Lord helps those who help themselves. I don't say that, but a lot of people do. I understand what they're saying. But the Lord helps those who cannot help themselves. He saves those who cannot save themselves. That would be all of us, by the way. Verse 14, the, uh, the New English Bible translates the last half of verse 14. He straightens backs that are bent. I like that. He straightens backs that are bent. The Lord sustains. He upholds the fallen and those who are burdened down with the cares of life. Isn't that the greatness of God in another dimension, that he would do that? There's a woman in the Gospels who was literally and physically bowed down. Luke 13, 11, there was a woman, it says in Luke 13, 11, there was a woman who for 18 years, 18 long years, had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten at all. Can you imagine being in that condition? But what no one else can do, the Lord did. He healed her, and Luke 13, 13 says, immediately she was made straight again. And she began glorifying God. That's what, that's what we should do when God does anything for us, by the way, glorify him. Now, hers was a physical problem, but it illustrates the point in all areas. The Lord can restore anyone who has been dealt a severe blow in life, who have fallen, who have been bowed down. One preacher from years ago, his name is Martin Gare. I don't know who the, the guy is, but I think he's below, before the 1800s. But he said this, Men are bowed down physically by infirmity. They are bowed down mentally by worry. They are bowed down spiritually by remorse. They regret so many things in their life. Some are even crushed by all three burdens. For, for such people, there is help in a mighty one, but none can help themselves alone. None are raised but by supernatural intervention. God sustains the helpless. He reaches down to help them. We're talking about his provision. Secondly, he supplies food to all. He supplies food to all, verses 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you, Lord, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. This is a reference to every living thing, all creatures of our God and King. People, 
animals, fish, birds, all the entire creation is what it's talking about here. The entire creation is dependent upon God for its maintenance, for its very food. And again, we can speak of common grace, God's generosity to, generosity to the world. It says, the eyes of all look to you. They look to him or they wait for him, we could translate it. And he supplies their daily bread. Now, when the Lord was questioning um, Job in Job 38, he asked Job this question. That's a great chapter, chapter 38 and 30 uh, in that area. He says, can you satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Can you do that, Job? Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God? Who prepares nourishment for the ravens when its young, the young ravens, cry out to God and they wander about without food? Who does this? God does. I can't, you know, I was thinking of the bird feeders in our backyard and how we are being used by God to help feed the birds even with seeds and and, then, and yet he supplies in so many ways for even the birds. Psalm 104, verse 14, another tremendous psalm, Psalm 104, 14. The Lord causes the grass to grow for the cattle, it says. It goes on to say, he causes vegetation for the labor of man so that man may bring forth food from the earth, food which sustains man's heart. In other words, he, create, he, he allows vegetation to grow so men can go work the fields and gather in the crops for food. Verse 21 of Psalm 140, uh, Psalm 144, rather, the young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God, it says. Matthew 6, 26, Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they're not storing up in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. God provides these things for creation. David says of God in verse 16, you open your hand, you open your hand, and you satisfy the creation. See how generous God is? Not a miser. He's not stingy. He opens his hand. You ever seen someone who feeds maybe birds or ducks? They open their hands, they have seed or something, and they feed them with that. That's the idea. He opens his hand. He's generous to every living creature. He satisfies the desire of every living thing, it says. Not carnal desires but the basic, the desire for basic needs. Now, corrupt governments can, can make their people go hungry, but God is providing this, these things for them. When Jesus and his disciples were away from the city and they were out in, uh, in, the, in the country, we could say, away from the city, there was only a boy with a lunch of uh, fish and loaves, a handful of fish and loaves, and a crowd that was starving to death. This situation looks desperate, but Jesus multiplied those few fishes and loaves, and he fed everybody. And Matthew 14, 20 says this, they all ate and were satisfied. They were satisfied. They, God satisfies the desire of every living thing. That's what he does. And it's very sad that people don't return thanks to God for what he gives them. He's given us so many things, and we're so ungrateful. He gives us so many things, and, it's unreal what he gives us. They benefit from God's provision of rain and sun and crops and food and all this, but it never occurs to them, God provided this for us. All over the world I'm talking about. God provided this. Many people don't know that. There are those who do seek their basic needs from God, their provisions, but <clears throat> their interest, and we're not careful, it could be our interest, is not so much in the provider as in the provision. 
itself. And we've got to be careful about that. We should give praise to the one who provides us with what we have. Once again, don't misplace the focus. Don't put the focus so much on the food to the exclusion of the one who satisfies us with the food. We should be thanking God daily for our daily bread and for what he gives us. He satisfies the helpless. He supplies food to all. Thirdly, verses 17 and 19, he hears the prayers of his people. We're talking about his provision physically, mentally, spiritually. He hears the prayers of his people. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. Uh, verse 17 actually introduces the rest of this psalm as well as pointing back to verses 14 and 16, 14 through 16. Uh, in this psalm, David, if, if you've noticed this, he repeats some of the themes again and again. Uh, for example, he's talked about the idea of God's kingship more than once. Now he's talking about his grace and goodness once again. He's already talked about this in so many words. Verse 17 says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. Go back to verse 7, the last half of the verse. It says, people will shout joyfully of your righteousness. That is something to shout about, definitely. But it's his righteous character that causes him to engage in this activity uh, of righteous activity towards his creation. Because he's righteous, he does all these things for people. And his righteousness extends to all his ways, it says, all of his ways. Now, you know, with people, this isn't true. With us, this isn't true. Because who can say that you're righteous, you're, you're, all your ways are righteous all the time? Who can say that? Nobody can say that. We have to confess our sins. We get angry with people. We lose our temper with people. We have a bad attitude. And so we can't say that. Now, if we didn't have the righteousness of, righteousness of Christ credited to our account, we would know nothing of righteousness at all. But through Christ, we're able to live righteously, thankfully. However, we don't always comply with the Lord and what he wants. And so the need for repentance and confession. But God is righteous in all his ways. And, verse 17, he is kind in all his deeds. There's that word all repeated again, I think, some 13 times in this chapter. The word translated kind, by the way, is that same, is that well-known term in the Old Testament uh, that's translated loving kindness in verse 8. It's translated uh, kind here, which describes the loyal, faithful love and mercy of God to people. Same word used once again in this place. He's kind to all. Now, some people think that God is some kind of a, and you hear people say this, some kind of a mean, evil tyrant filled with revenge. He wants to get people. But the scripture says, rather, he is kind in all his deeds. Not some of his deeds, all of his deeds. Think about that. Think about the fact that God's intention in the world is actually to be kind. That's his character. But people reject him, and they oppose him, and they seek the harm of his people, and they persecute his people, and they defy him on every hand, and so he must exercise judgment. But his desire is to be kind, and he's righteous toward his creation. We're talking about God's provision. You must understand that the basis of this provision is his righteousness and his kind character. And so this verse 17 is somewhat transitional. We're moving from the provision now from the world in general, verses 14 and 16, to all the creatures, to God's people in particular in verses 17 through 20. 
And since he is so generous to creation in general, how much more would he be to his people, his own people in particular, the ones he calls his own? So verse 17 is the basis to what follows and what precedes it. Now, verses 18 and 19 especially discuss this idea of prayer. God hears the prayers of his people. However, there are conditions for prayer. Conditions. Listen listen as we read verses 18 and 19 again. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their, their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him. This is not a prayer free-for-all. There are conditions placed that God places upon those who pray. The first condition to be met is one of honesty. Verse 18, we're to call upon him in truth. Prayer that God hears is prayer from a true-hearted believer, not the professing hypocrite. From a believer, rather, who's genuine, who's true, who comes before him in total honesty and integrity and confesses his sin. You all remember in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the uh, tax collector, both praying, both praying men in that section at least. And uh, it was said of the Pharisee, the very religious Pharisee, read it carefully, it says he was praying this prayer to himself. God, I thank you I'm not like other men are. So he prays this to himself. He certainly wasn't praying to God, not in, not in reality. He pretended to be, he looked like he was. He spoke of how good he was. He spoke of how good he was in prayer. By the way, this is the, the way not to pray, the way the Pharisee prayed. He talked about how great he was, how better he was than other people. Certainly better than the lowly tax collector, than the tax collector in his presence. The tax collector, however, was not even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he smote upon his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now that was a prayer of sincerity. That was a prayer prayed in truth. And Luke relates to us that the tax collector went away justified rather than the Pharisee, the hypocritical Pharisee, because it's the one who humbles himself before Christ. It's the one who admits his sin. It's the one who realizes he needs a Savior and asks God for mercy that God saves. Maybe that's your condition tonight. Uh, Or if if you're at home on live stream, maybe that's your condition. Call upon him tonight. And humble yourself before him, and he will save you. Christ is the Savior. The Lord is near, it says, to the one who prays in truth. Is near. Great phrase, near in the sense of the closeness that friends share. You know, like a close friend. Think of your closest friend. And more than that, that's what we're talking about here. The Lord, James says, the Lord will draw near to the one who draws near to him. It's like Jesus said in John 14, 23. 1423, a great verse, Shane, and I talked about this verse the other day, a verse that I've always found fascinating. John 1423, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And listen to this. And we will come and make our abode with him. We'll make our home with him. We'll be at home with him. That's true fellowship with the father and the son. Verse 19 God will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He'll also hear their cry and save them. <clears throat> the, key, the people who call upon God are also those who, the call upon God in truth are also those who fear him. And of course, those who fear God have desires that please God. Their desires are not worldly. God's going to fulfill their desires. Don't think he's going to fulfill every desire you want. He's going to fulfill the desires of those that fear him, it says. You know, maybe you prayed for something. 
again and again, and it hasn't come to pass, and it could be, could it be that this is a selfish desire you have? Could that be the problem? One that's at odds with God's will. We need to make sure your prayers are lined up with God's purposes, and that's, then you're on solid praying ground. It's not, by the way, it's not selfish to pray for what God has approved in his word. That's not selfishness. Don't misunderstand. God will hear the cry of the God-fearers. He will save them. He will deliver them because he promises to. The Lord responds to his people. Notice he's always responding in these verses. He responds to his people in their time of need. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He's our very present help in trouble. And so he hears the prayers of his people. Fourthly, as we talk about God's provision, he will watch over his people. He'll watch over them. Verse 20, the Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Another condition, the first part of this verse is intended for those who love God. That's the condition, loving him. The second part of this verse is intended for those who hate God. The Lord keeps those who love him. Probably that word keep may be better translated, rendered watches over. The Lord watches over those that love him. What a comforting thought to think that God, my God, is watching over all I do in a, in a sense of caring, in a sense of tender care and love, like a shepherd watches over his flock, keeping us secure, watching over us, protecting us, preserving us, all these kind of things. All these conditions we are to meet, calling upon him in truth, fearing him, loving him as we come to prayer. But all of this presupposes that he has drawn us first to himself. And he's given us a heart to call upon him in truth. He's given us a heart to fear him and love him. We don't do these things somehow because it's naturally in us. God must bring us to his son Christ, and he must put these desires in our heart. We won't love him until he first loved us. We won't fear him until he's instilled his fear into us. We won't pray in truth until he's first brought us to the truth. God must work in our hearts. Now, the stark contrast to the first half of this verse is the second half of this verse. Strangely enough, after all this time about God's blessing to his people, we're praising God, you have this. But all the wicked he will destroy. Now, no wicked person will escape the wrath of God, not even one. That's just the truth, though. God blesses his people, but the wrath, the, the wrath of God will be against those who oppose him. But what a contrast is to those who love him. You either love the Lord or you hate him, one of the two. Because people, before they're saved, hate God. Colossians and Romans talk about that. They hate God. There's no middle ground at all. Look at all the ways God provides for everyone in this section, verses 14 and 20. Think about this. Verse 14, he sustains people. He raises them up when they're fallen. Verse 15, he gives us food to eat. Verse 16, he opens his hand and satisfies us. Verse 17, he is righteous and kind. Verse 18, he is near to, to his true people. Verse 19, he fulfills and he hears our prayers. Verse 20, he watches over us. What's our role in all this? To praise him. To give him praise. David prays, or ends the psalm in verse 21, my mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord. How could he not do that after all this? And all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. David, born out of a love for God, wanted to praise God. And he did that as long as he had breath. But not only David, it says at the last half of verse 21, all flesh, it says, interestingly enough, 
All flesh will bless his holy name. He is holy, the, really, the only holy one, the one that is holy, perfectly so. And that alone would be enough for us to praise him. But all flesh will praise him. Now, I don't know all the particulars of this, how this is all going to come about. But I do know this. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 states this. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. It's from Isaiah, actually. Every knee will bow, none accepted, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Once again, praise. It's always about this. It always comes down to this. Every time. There are so many reasons to praise him. If we began a list tonight in this church, it, would, it, would, it could become a book. There'd be so many reasons. There are 10,000 reasons and more to praise him. In this psalm, we should praise God for his greatness, for his goodness, for his kingdom, for his provision. Honestly, I don't think we're doing such a great job of this. I don't think I'm doing such a great job of this. I've thought about this. I'm, I'm very glad that I came to uh, Psalm 145, or the Lord brought me to, Psalm 100, to, to my attention, Psalm 145. I don't want to say anything extra biblical revelation here. Uh, that he allowed me to read Psalm 145 a week ago to think about this because it's really helped my perspective on what are we doing here anyway. We're here to praise God, ultimately, and all that we do. I believe we really need to think about this, and we really need to commit ourselves to this wonderful activity of praising the Lord both publicly and privately in the confines of our own heart as we have time with the Lord ourselves. It's not a burden. I don't mean to say this as a discipline that we have to make ourselves do. I'm not saying that. It's not burdensome. It's a blessing. In fact, giving the Lord praise is not only honors Him, but it's a blessing to us ourselves as we realize, wow, we serve a great God. Let's just praise the Lord as he so richly deserves. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful again uh, for time in your word. Uh, we're thankful that it points us in the right direction. We're so caught up in the world so many times and think about a lot of things that are worthless. Help us to focus on you, Lord, your praise, praise of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're thankful that you have brought us to yourself and that you've given us a tongue to praise you. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.